According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again this morning, we are in the book of Isaiah. This is our 52nd week in the book of Isaiah. Therefore, we are ready for Isaiah chapter 52. Awake, awake, and no excuses this morning. You've had an extra hour of sleep. Awake, awake, clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. All right, this is what begins the chapter and uh, where we left off a week ago at the end of chapter 51. So uh, we want to jump right back into it here this morning. Before we do, though, uh, it does us no good to be here in carnality this morning. So let's take a moment for silent prayer, giving each believer priest the opportunity to humble your heart under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing, the blessing that you have provided in a lampstand where we may assemble together. I thank you for the freedom in our nation that continues to allow us to assemble together in a public building with a sign out front, Father, and we're not uh, meeting in secret or hiding away in fear, uh, concerned about uh, martyrdom or a government coming in to take us all away into into prison. Father, uh, there's, there's a direction this uh, nation is headed, and it's not a pleasant direction to think about. But nevertheless, uh, we're not there yet. And on this day, we have freedom to assemble, and I thank you for that freedom. Bless those that have come together this morning. Reward the positive volition that hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Open the eyes of our understanding, Father, and I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Isaiah chapter 52, and we are actually continuing on the rousing messages from the previous chapter. This is now the second of the rousing messages that we uh, actually got to start looking at back in chapter 51. Yahweh's second rousing of believing Israel commands them to remove their chains and dress joyously for the joy that is set before them. What a, what a delight to be able to identify with the joy that is set before us. And what a joy it is for Israel to identify with the joy that is set before them. And what a blessing that our Savior had the joy set before him. And it is on that basis that he endured the cross and despised the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God in heaven. If I can back up just a little bit, we highlighted this a week ago with the wake-up calls. You'll notice in verse 17, rouse yourself, rouse yourself. If you back up to chapter 51, you'll see verse 17 there, what we covered last week. Rouse yourself, rouse yourself. And this is, in fact, God turning it around backwards because earlier in the chapter, uh, Israel had told God to wake up. All right, in their prayer life, they were commanding Yahweh to wake up. And you'll notice in verse 9, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? And we had some comments last week related to Rahab, related to the... the, the reality of Satan and his rebellion against God, the fallen dragon, which he is. Well, 
In all of these wake-up calls, I find it interesting how uh, in prayer, Israel will call upon God to wake up when it's been Israel that's been asleep for all these centuries, all right? Nevertheless, it is interesting when you observe a pattern in prayer when believers have the temerity, the importunity to demand that God do something. And when we order God and we tell God what to do, as Abraham did, as Moses did, as Jesus did, as David did, we have many, many examples in the Bible where we tell God what to do or we tell God what he cannot do. And at first, that kind of seems awkward on our part. That seems boastful and arrogant and wrong. Who are we to to tell God what to do? But we have freedom to do that when he himself has promised what he's going to do. In other words, it's fulfillment of his own prophecy. God himself cannot be a liar. If he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, then I have every right to go to him in prayer and say, Father, don't leave me. Don't forsake me. And I can tell him what to do on the basis, not of my authority, it's not my sovereignty bossing God around, but it is calling upon him and his faithfulness to make good on the promises that he himself has made. And so in, in 51.9, it was Israel, it was believing Israel. That's so important, believing Israel. We haven't seen believing Israel yet, uh, historically on planet earth. They have not yet uh, been humbled to that point of faith. That will happen in the coming tribulation. But believing Israel is now calling on Yahweh, the very Christ who they persecuted, the very Christ whom they crucified. They're calling on their Messiah to wake up and put on strength and save them. And so we have the uh, imperative, awake, awake, that's found there in verse 9, to their rousing him in that rousing. And so Yahweh then turns it back to them, and he rouses them to action. And uh, the first of those is, is uh, in 51.17, says, rouse yourself, rouse yourself. And so Yahweh has turned it back to them, you see. And now as we cross into chapter 52, it's the second of these rousing imperatives, Awake, awake, or rouse, rouse. Clothe yourself in your strength. And it's a command now for them to remove their chains, to dress joyously for the joy that is set before them. It's an imperative for how they should now be dressed. They can take off their chains because he has come to deliver them from everything they've been chained to up until that point. All right? And so uh, I certainly enjoy this. Let's read the rest of this, verses 3 and following. For thus says the Lord... You were sold for nothing. You will be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, that is Adonai Yahweh. My people went down at the first into Egypt to reside there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. So he kind of gives a mini walk through the Bible here. It's a survey. He covers the Exodus. He also covers the the, uh, captivity. Now, therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord. (laughs) You ever ask yourself that? goes, well now, what do we have here? Declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause. Again, the Lord declares, those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. And just how long do you think Yahweh is going to put up with that? (laughs) All right. If you think Israel is having a hard time enduring, putting up with the Gentiles and their dominion over them, how tough do you think it is for Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel, to be blasphemed the way that he is? 
I've said this many times myself. I mean, it's it's how uh, frustrating is it that the name of my Savior is profanity today? That people in their anger will shout the name of uh, of Jesus Christ, and they're not shouting it in a joyous celebration as you and I might. All right, they're shouting it like they would shout other uh, uh, vulgarities or obscenities and whatnot. They smash their thumb with a hammer and whatnot, and all of a sudden they want to shout the name of my Savior. All right, I'm tired of that. I'm waiting for the day when, when his name will be the only name that will be exalted and glorified and worshiped. And that's what we're looking forward to here. So uh, again, Yahweh declares, those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking, here I am. All right, here I am. Am. So he commands them to take off their uh, chains and put on their festal garments. The Jewish people will be provided new garments, even as their king receives his garments from God the Father, and his bride is likewise adorned in glory. And this is where we can stop and be a little bit careful and rightly divide the word of truth and identify the different garments for what they are. The garments that the Jewish people are going to be putting on as the uh, celebrants, we might say, as those that are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Not us, of course. We're not invited. We are giving the invitations along with our, our, uh, our Lord. Jesus Christ likewise has garments that we'll get to about eight weeks from now. Uh, we'll get to in Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61, where he himself will put on garments. 61.10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. And this is Jesus Christ celebrating the faithfulness of God the Father. He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And so Jesus Christ himself will likewise be dressed because of his faithfulness before God the Father. We'll get there in chapter 61. As well, you and I, you and I will have clothing in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. You and I will be dressed in fine garments, white and clean, described in Revelation 19, verse 7, verse 8, and verse 14. Revelation 19. And it's important that we learn what these garments are so that we prepare now. The garments now are even now being prepared because they represent the righteous acts of the saints. And so if you have a, a motivation to achieve righteous activity for the glory of Jesus Christ, uh, part of that motivation ought to be the clothing that you will wear during his millennial kingdom. So Revelation 19, 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And you know, everyone loves a wedding, and of course, a big highlight of the wedding is checking out the the dress, seeing how beautiful the bride is in this beautiful dress, all right? And that is a foreshadowing. It ought to put us in thinking of of ourselves as the bride of Christ, and how dazzling are we going to be, or not? What righteous deeds are we? Are we storing up treasure in heaven right now or not? Is it gold, silver, and precious stones that we're laying away or is it wood, hay, and stubble that we're laying away? Let's stop to consider this. And then uh, as the heavens are opened and Jesus Christ comes forth on his white horse, 
Verse 11 of Revelation 19, He who sat on it is called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and wages war. What a glory. He, his eyes are a flame of fire on his head or many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. As part of our rewards, we get the new name that's between us and the Father. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, write your name in there. That's you, that's me. We are the royal family of God clothed in fine linen and white and clean. We're following him on white horses. Looking forward to that. You know, the last time I went to war, I was very much in a mortal body. <laughs> All right, Operation Desert Storm and Desert Shield and, and uh, uh, being in a mortal body, being subject to uh, death and, and things like that. But this next time around, guess what? No more death. In the immortality of glory, riding on these white horses. What a, what a fun war this is going to be. And yet, uh, of course, he's the one that issues forth the sword from his mouth and all the, the victory is his anyway. But what fun it's going to be uh, to follow after in that regard. <laughs> Somebody asked me, how come you've never been to Israel? You've never been to the Holy Land? I said, well, that's all right. I have a tour that's booked already. I got, I'm taking a horseback tour and it's already booked. And they had no clue what I was talking about. <laughs> I said, really? All right, have some fun with them. How about taking off your chains and putting on your festal robes, all right? Because the deliverance is finally here. What a joy. Not only the redemption of humanity from the slave market of sin, but the redemption of Israel from the Gentile dominion that they've been under. As a nation, the blood of the covenant is going to be applied to them. As a nation, they're going to be brought under the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, 31 and applications there that we'll see when we, uh, when we get that far. Gentile dominion over the vacated Davidic throne will come to an end when the Son of David arrives to assert his claim to that throne. Gentile dominion over the vacated Davidic throne. I'm just going to give you a taste of things this morning that really takes a lot of work to dig through it. But understand, when when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, when Nebuchadnezzar leveled the city and destroyed the temple and carried off the captives to Babylon, the Davidic throne was vacated. That is, Zedekiah was the final heir of David seated on that throne, and he was removed from that throne. They were taken away into captivity. That is a significant event in the history of Israel because God had already promised that the son of David would eternally sit on that throne. And we have the lineage from David to Solomon to Rehoboam all the way down. Some were good kings, some were crummy, and all the rest. But you get down to Zedekiah finally, and the throne is vacated. And there has not been a Davidic son on that throne ever since. That is significant, but it's going to come to an end. Luke 21, 24 even makes mention of the times of the Gentiles. And just to, not to spend a ton of time on this, but I want you to be familiar with this. Luke 21, 24, and if you have a dispensational background, that's good, that'll help, but pretend uh, you can ignore that for this verse, all right? It's not a dispensational statement in Luke 21, 24. Don't confuse the dispensation of the Gentiles from Adam to Abraham with the times of the Gentiles that Jesus speaks of in Luke 21, 24. And uh, in the Lord's message here in the uh, Olivet Discourse and the things to come, he talks about the wars and the rumors of wars and the, and the, uh, the horrible things that are going to afflict the Jewish people during the Great Tribulation. 
and uh, how they're going to be days of vengeance and how Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by armies and uh, woe to those who are pregnant and are nursing babies in those days. Why? Because that slows you down, right? (laughs) You ever seen a pregnant woman run fast? All right. They will fall by the edge of the sword and they will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Ultimately, the, the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation that's still future, the great tribulation of Israel will have its culmination with what Jesus calls here the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled and then he's done. He puts an end to it. He will himself take his seat on the throne of David. And this period of time in which Jerusalem has been trampled from Nebuchadnezzar through modern times and on into our eschatology, Jesus Christ will bring that to an end. He will no longer allow the Davidic throne to be trampled, the Jewish people to be trampled, Jerusalem to be trampled. In fact, as I get back to Isaiah uh, 52, we're going to find that... um, carnality won't be tolerated (laughs) in Jerusalem. Unbelievers will not be welcome in Jerusalem. And if they sneak in during the day, they better not stay overnight. Because if he catches them there in the morning, he will execute them. Again, that's Isaiah 52.1. Jerusalem, the holy city. The uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. It will be a place of Jewish holiness for the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so we have it. You know, it's, it's so remarkable. Have you ever studied Zerubbabel? Of course not. Nobody does. I'm going to meet somebody someday that's done a whole study on Zerubbabel. I've written a book on Zerubbabel, and I'll shake his hand. Zerubbabel led one of the returnings back, right? Led the first of the returnings back. Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah led three waves of returnings from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And Zerubbabel was the heir. He was the line of Christ, heir of David, the legitimate claimant to the Davidic throne. But he returned to Jerusalem and he never claimed the Davidic throne. He served the Persian government. He served Cyrus. Cyrus was the Persian king called in Isaiah, called the Christ, the servant. Cyrus permitted the Jews to return. Zedekiah led them back. And Zedekiah faithfully served Cyrus as a governor as the governor of the Judean province of Persia, he never laid claim to the throne of David. And none of his children ever laid claim to the throne of David. And on down from Zedekiah to Shealtiel, I'm sorry, from Zerubbabel to Shealtiel to all the way down to Joseph engaged to a virgin named Mary, they were all entitled to the throne and not one of them claimed the throne. Jesus was the legal heir of the Davidic throne, and yet he's waiting for his father to say, now you may take that throne. In his first advent, Jesus never claimed it. He will at his second advent. This becomes a uh, significant aspect to our, uh, to our eschatology as well. All right. Back to Isaiah 52 now, and we look at verse 7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. And it goes on. This is only the beginning of this uh, gospel message as we look at it 7 through 10. 
Let me read 8 through 10 now. Listen, you watchmen, lift up uh, your watchmen, lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. There's a prophecy for you. Because when he came in first advent, the Jews didn't see him. (laughs) He came to his own and his own received him not. But when he comes at second advent, they will be watchmen on the wall and you bet they're going to see him. It's going to take the the wrath of God and tribulation to humble them, to wake them up, to see, for them to see Jesus Christ, whom they crucified. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Yahweh has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. All right, and obviously this is using salvation in terms of a political deliverance, an earthly rescue in saving the Jewish people from the armies, the Gentile armies that have surrounded them at this time. And so we see it here. You know, evangelists are always beautiful. Their feet are always beautiful. It's it's kind of an interesting description, and some of it's somewhat cultural. We don't typically compliment people on their feet these days if we're going to compliment a a bodily feature or some facet there. Um, I don't know. Maybe the trend will come back at some point. Uh, In any event, if you want to compliment uh, someone in their attractiveness, I suspect uh, you're not going to start anyway with, with feet. Nevertheless, the Bible does. The Bible says that the feet of evangelists are beautiful things. Because they are feet that are prepared, they're dressed, they've, they've shod their feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The armor, uh, the, the footgear in the armor is oriented towards evangelism. Your readiness to go where he wants you to go. And uh, what, a, what a delight. I, I'm thankful we had the Gideons here last hour and the testimony of, of their faithfulness. They go wherever they can go. And they go into schools. Sadly, they don't get into many schools anymore in our country, but overseas they can get into a lot of schools and hand out uh, Bibles to school kids. Beautiful feet. And we see it here. I think a lot of people know this uh, passage because it's quoted in the New Testament in different places, but it originally comes here. It comes from Isaiah 52 in the context of the Jewish people receiving the Messiah that they rejected at first advent. And imagine how tough a mission field that's going to be if it's the jewish people that rejected their messiah and handed him over to the romans and put him on a cross and that's the only messiah they're going to be given they have to repent they have to be humbled they have to look upon him whom they pierced they have to call upon their god for his salvation and they're going to do that they're absolutely going to do that and what i find interesting here evangelists are always beautiful Romans 10, 15, but tribulational evangelists will be the most beautiful of all. The most beautiful of all. If you can imagine any mission field more precious than the great tribulation, (laughs) imagine Satan is unrestrained. Satan's own beloved son is ruling this world as a false Christ, as a counterfeit Christ. The, The unbelieving world is accepting a mark, the mark of the beast that dooms them to the lake of fire. And true believers are standing for their faith in a a powerful way. And these witnesses, these 144,000 Jewish evangelists, you think they've got beautiful feet? (laughs) All right? When you consider the things they're going through for the gospel of Jesus Christ, I tell you, it's something else. 
Uh, Romans 10, of course, I think we're familiar with. It's a quotation from here in Isaiah 52. It does come into a church context being written by Paul in the, in the New Testament. And we, we use Romans 10 a lot for gospel uh, applications. Sometimes uh, church evangelists even get themselves in trouble when they complicate things here in Romans chapter 10. But in any event, um, I do like the exhortation here, though. As it says, um, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I love that. That's the whosoever passage. And then it says, how will they then call upon him in whom they have not believed? Stands to reason. And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? That's the thing. We're, We're mocked for our empty faith, and yet the Bible knows no such thing. There's no such thing as empty faith. There's no such thing as blind faith. There's no such thing as faith in faith or faith in nothing. Faith is always grounded in an object. Pistuo is always a transitive verb. You are placing your confidence in an object. In this case, it's the trustworthiness of the God who promises eternal life for those who trust him for eternal life. And so, but how do you believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life if nobody ever tells you that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins? And so thank God for the evangelist that tells you that that you're no good and you need eternal life, (laughs) okay? For me, it was my mother when I was four years old. She sat me down and said I was going to go to hell. And she said, if you don't have Christ, you don't have eternal life. If you have the Son, you have life. She showed me 1 John chapter 5 and said, here it is. You're going one place or the other when you die. And she didn't want me to go to hell. And I said, well, thanks. (laughs) And I learned. All right. And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? And so there's a logical progression here in this, and thank God that he sends us. Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And so this is Paul in the book of Romans taking our Isaiah passage this morning, bringing it into a church application, reminding us that everybody in the body of Christ is a sent one. You and I have this message You don't have to be an evangelist or a preacher or uh, you don't have to be a vocational minister of any sort. You have been entrusted the ministry of reconciliation. You have been sent. You have beautiful feet if, in fact, uh, you shod them with this preparation. And you're ready to go where he sends you. You're ready to talk to whoever, wherever, whenever. All right? That's a beautiful thing. But the most beautiful of all are going to be these tribulational evangelists. Imagine... After the rapture of the church, no human evangelists remain. There's no more believers on the planet when the trumpet sounds and the church is caught up to heaven. So who gives the gospel when the church is gone? There's no more living believers on the planet to give the gospel. Well, God's ahead of us. He's got a plan. He's going to dispatch some angels. I imagine there'll be some Gideon Bibles laying around. (laughs) All right. There will be uh, MP3 files sitting on a website minding their own MP3 business. There will be ways that the Lord will use to expose people to the gospel, even without evangelists. But guess what his first order of business is going to be? It's going to be prepping those 144,000. I believe they're going to be among the first to come to faith are going to be the 12,000 from each of those 12 tribes, as they're spelled out in Revelation chapter 14, Revelation chapter 7. It's going to be an angel that flies in the mid-heaven and he's proclaiming an eternal gospel. Eventually, 144,000 Jewish evangelists are going to reap a harvest that cannot be counted. You think the harvest was powerful in the first century? You ever study church history? Under Roman persecution, 
with martyrdom, with the Colosseum, with Christians being thrown to the lions. And the early church grew by leaps and bounds. Under persecution, the, the church thrives, which is kind of the silver lining in the, in the whole concept of watching our country go down the tubes. All right, We're watching the trends of darkness increase. We're watching the anti-Christian attitudes increase. And we have to wonder, is there persecution, open uh, persecution on the way? If so, take courage because I believe it's going to weed out a lot of the phonies, a lot of the cultural Christians, a lot of the, you know, uh, fair weather Christians. And the, uh, the true disciples of Jesus Christ are going to shine forth pretty brightly. And it'll be a good thing overall in the end stage apostasy of the, of the church. Well, um, we can look at these. Uh, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, but again, we have... And, and they're sealed, they're protected, so they're not going to be harmed by the, the demons that are let loose and some of the uh, curses that come upon the uh, earth dwellers in this. As we start with uh, Revelation 14, verse 6 and verse 7, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, to the earth dwellers, and, the, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. This is God's program and has been His program since the Tower of Babel. He has divided humanity into nations, tribes, tongues, and peoples. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him the glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. <laughs> you think John the Baptist had a fruitful ministry? When he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, that was first advent, and there wasn't fire and brimstone and trumpets and bowls and vials and all of the wrath of the great tribulation. That's what, the, that's what Israel and the Gentile nations have to look forward to. The hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters. And then another angel, a second one, follows. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. That gets us into some other eschatological issues. And so there are angelic witnesses. Since the bride is gone, the church is gone, you and I are going to be in heaven feasting and standing before the judgment seat and receiving our rewards for all eternity. The, the, the morning after the rapture, there are no more believers on planet earth. And so uh, thankfully there is angelic evangelism that will happen. And then ultimately the Jewish evangelists will uh, become active. Backing up now to Revelation chapter 7. And it's not surprising that they're Jewish because remember the church is a parenthesis that uh, Israel has a stewardship. They were the stewards before the church was brought about. And God's not done with Israel. Their stewardship wasn't ended. It was simply placed on hold. A partial hardening has come to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, we're told. Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 through 9 I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And it's not a big generic number that's designed to be meaningless. It is a specific number. And then it is subdivided tribe by tribe by tribe. 12,000 from Judah, 12,000 from Reuben, 12,000 from Gad, all the way down the list. 12,000 from Asher. There's Happy. We talked about Happy this morning. Asher, okay? You know, the dwarf, Happy. Just call him Asher. Give him his Hebrew name. 
Uh, Naphtali, 12,000. Manasseh, 12,000. Simeon, 12,000. Levi, 12,000. Issachar, 12,000. Interesting, Levi is not usually numbered among the tribes because he's usually set apart uh, to keep the number at 12, but here he's, uh, he's given his tribal allotment. 12,000 are sealed from the tribe of Levi. Likewise, Issachar, 12,000. Zebulun, 12,000. Joseph, 12,000. You know, Joseph was the tribe that got double portion blessing. Joseph was renamed or was given two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. All right. Manasseh had its own 12,000 in verse 6. I think the reference to Joseph there is to the um, Ephraim portion of of Joseph in verse (coughs) 8. And as I say, Levi is there as well. When they're not normally, Levi is normally brought out of the list to keep it at 12. And uh, right now... uh, a very careful Bible student would say, well, where's Dan? All right, where's Dan? Dan's missing. Why is Dan not included? All right. I'm not going to answer that this morning, but <laughs> you, have, you can get it. It's in our Revelation series. All right. Dan has a future, but Dan is not protected as a tribe of evangelism in the tribulation. I believe Dan is, is capitulating with the Antichrist. Dan is promoting the false prophet. False prophet rises from the tribe of Dan and uh, serves Antichrist during the tribulation. All Israel will be saved. You understand that? All Israel will be saved. These evangelists are going to be thriving. And uh, primarily, and they're, they're going to reach every tribe, every tongue, every language on the earth. The number that are going to be saved are so, so large that the author of uh, the, the Apostle John in Revelation says the number of them can't even be counted. That's after he gets done counting 144,000 evangelists tribe by tribe by tribe by tribe. But then he says the harvest that they reap can't even be counted. And I find that extraordinary to show the, the thriving success of these witnesses. All Israel will be saved and the Levitical priesthood will be sanctified for their millennial temple service. Romans 11.26, of course, in the New Testament referencing back to, uh, to here. Uh, not only chapter 52, but as we peek ahead to chapter 59, we see, we see this principle described. A Redeemer will come to Zion, and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. See, it's not just a political rescue. It's not just a military victory. It's not just winning a, a military fight and, and having your enemies dead. They must be saved. If there are any unbelieving Jewish people that survived the tribulation... They're not going to enter into the millennial kingdom. Jesus Christ will personally execute them before the millennial kingdom begins. Ezekiel chapter 20 says he purges the rebels from their midst. No unbelieving Jew and no unbelieving Gentile without eternal life will enter into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is how God keeps his promises. He will regather every racially Jewish person from the four corners of the earth. Every racially Jewish person will be brought into the wilderness of Israel to enter into judgment. And only believers will pass under the rod of the covenant and enter into the, the millennial kingdom of Israel. Read, read Ezekiel 20 sometime and see, see what he does to bring them into judgment, to bring them under the rod of the covenant. And the rebels, how he purges the rebels from his midst. That's on the Jewish side. The Gentile purging comes in a sheep and goat judgment when he separates them left and right. Again, unbelievers will not enter the millennial kingdom. That's a Gentile passage, by the way. The sheep and goat judgment, when you read about that in in, uh, Matthew 25. 
All Israel will be saved and the Levitical priesthood will be sanctified for their millennial temple service. Now here is where we could spend quite a bit of time and if we were doing a uh, verse-by-verse format, we'd probably stop here for weeks at a time or even a month or longer. Um, The idea that that there is a Levitical uh, priesthood in the millennium with animal sacrifices is, is a big problem for a whole lot of folks in their thinking because they're, they're church-oriented in their thinking. And for us, Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the animal sacrifices of, of Leviticus. He is the fulfillment. All, all those animal rituals were all pointing to Christ. And they were again and again and again. Every time a, a, an animal was offered, it was a reminder of sin. And all of that is done away in Christ. And so if you know anything about the New Testament, if you love the book of Hebrews, if you're a church-age believer, dispensationally oriented things, then that's an easy call to make. And then you start reading prophetic passages like Isaiah and Ezekiel, especially Ezekiel 40 through 48, um, but other places through the Old Testament, you say, they're, they're butchering animals again in, in the millennium. There is animal sacrifice again in the millennium. What's that about? How can that be? And there's different answers to that, and typically assumptions get made that, well, they're memorial. They're, they're looking back to the cross, just as Old Testament sacrifices were looking forward to the cross, millennial sacrifices will look back to the cross. And that's kind of a typical commentary view, but I don't believe it's accurate, related to the prophetic message that goes with it, you understand. So let's just see a couple of these. Again, I don't want to spend a ton of time on it. I'm I'm eager to get to the last part of the chapter here. <laughs> we, we're gonna, we got a picture of our Savior in verses 13 through 15. But um, we, we could spend a little bit of time here at least. You'll notice uh, verses uh, 11 and 12 of Isaiah 52. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch nothing unclean. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. We have Levitical priests and Levites. They are carrying the vessels. They are the, the uh, priestly tribe in, uh, in Israel. But you will not go out in haste, nor will you go as fugitives, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Similar to what he did as the, as the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. He went before them, but he also stood behind them. When there were enemies behind them, he stood behind them. That way they crossed the Red Sea safely. Different things there. But uh, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. The millennium will have a temple. It's going to have vessels. It's going to have altars. It's going to have sacrifices. Um, Clearly, let me just grab a handful here out of Ezekiel. Spend some time in Ezekiel. Start in chapter 40 and read to the end of the book. Start in chapter 40 and read through chapter 48. It's nine chapters. And um, some of them are tedious, but I think they're all worthwhile. (laughs) Okay. You know, I I understand Bible reading plans and you start every January in Genesis and Exodus and then you hit Leviticus and so much for the Bible reading plan. All right, I get that. But here we are with the millennial Leviticus. Okay, we have here, eschatologically speaking, we have a description of the temple, of the priesthood, of the garments, of the offerings, of the of uh, the the everything is all spelled out here. Ezekiel was given a guided tour, he took measurements. He walked around. He spent a lot of time in this place, 
And whether it was a vision or a dream or God literally took Ezekiel forward in time and planted him there, I think that's likely what he did. Chapter 40 of Ezekiel, verses 44 through 46. From the outside of the inner gate were chambers for the singers in the inner court, one of which was at the side of the north gate. Okay, so make a note if you're a singer. You, you know what gate to, I'm teasing. You're not, you're not a Levitical singer and uh, you're a bride of Christ anyway. You're going to be with, with uh, all of us in the Lord. But the Levitical singers, uh, they enter the north gate. All right, with his front toward the south and one of the side of the south gate facing toward the north. And he said to me, this is the chamber which faces toward the south intended for the priests who keep charge of the temple. But the chamber which faces toward the north is for the priests who keep charge of the altar. So they've divided the, the labor here between the, the temple and the altar. And these are the sons of Zadok who from the sons of Levi come near to the Lord to minister to him. And one particular division within the Levitical priesthood is the family of Zadok, who was faithful in the, in the generation of David. There's somebody else I want to shake the hand. Meet somebody that's ever studied Zadok, somebody that's ever written a book about Zadok, okay? Not a Mormon, they've, they've got different things. But a, a real, true uh, biblical scholar that's done work on Zadok, along with Zerubbabel, and there's somebody that's doing his homework. All right, chapter 42, verses 13 and 14. Still in Ezekiel now. He said to me, the north chambers and the south chambers, which are opposite the separate area. Ooh, the separate area. Man, I'd love to teach about the separate area. The separate area is beyond the Holy of Holies. Wow. The the tabernacle didn't have this. Solomon's temple didn't have this. But the millennial temple will have a separate area beyond the Holy of Holies. It'll have a holy place. It'll have the most holy place. And then this separate area, even beyond the most holy place. Wow. And it has no doors and no windows. That makes it kind of tough. How do you get into a place that doesn't have doors or windows? All right. I'm teasing you with things. If you want to ask questions, we, we do question and answer on Wednesday night. Um, and then there's holy chambers where the priests who are near to the Lord shall eat the most holy things. There they shall lay the most holy things, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, for the place is holy. But you'll notice there's offerings taking place just like in Solomon's temple. When the priests enter, then they shall not go out into the outer court from the sanctuary without laying their their garments in which they minister, for they are holy. They shall put on other garments. They've got to do a change of clothes any time they come in or out. And uh, then they shall approach that which is for the people. When they're off duty and they're stopped, by, they, they have to take off the garments they wear as they approach the Lord, and they put on their people-approaching garments as they uh, go out to approach the people. There's more. A longer stretch in chapter 43, a longer stretch in chapter 44. But I'll let that go. All right? Just uh, understand there's study to be done. There's work to be done on the coming millennium. And what's staggering to me, as, as the Bible describes it too, by the way, there is significant geographical changes that will happen when Jesus Christ touches down on the Mount of Olives. We understand there's a great earthquake. The mountain itself is going to split north and south, and half the mountain goes one way, the other, the other way, and then the great valley comes in, in the middle of it. All right. Other topographical changes happen as well. The entire land of Jerusalem is lifted up as if a, uh, on a, on a, tab, a tab, uh, plateau. Okay, uh, and uh, it's going to be large enough because the current dimensions of, of the real estate in Jerusalem today aren't big enough. 
the mountain today that they're fighting over. The Muslims put a mosque up there and the Jews want to go and, and, and weep. And the, 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 the different uh, places that are in Jerusalem today, from the Wailing Wall to the, the Dome of the Rock and all that other stuff, the, the, the territory of those mountains are not big enough to house the structure that's defined in Ezekiel. Okay? And so some people mock it and ridicule it and say, well, it can't be fulfilled. Let me tell you something. God has not failed yet to fulfill one thing he said he was going to do. He will make it happen. That temple will be built. And it will be built on a much enlarged Jerusalem. All right. Well, let's spend some time looking at Jesus. And really, if I was in charge of chapterification, I would uh, want to put the chapter here. In fact, I would have taken all of those 12 verses and included them back into chapter 51. They, they kind of belong there anyway. Make the second uh, rousing message part of chapter 51, just like the first one was. Make the rest of these, take these 12 verses and put them back in chapter 51. You end up with the 35-verse chapter. That's not bad. I can deal with that. And then take verses 13, 14, and 15 and shove it forward into chapter 53. Okay? But then you're all messed up because then you've got nothing in chapter 52. <laughs> all right. But I'm not in charge of chapterification, so that was, that was done centuries ago. But this is the fourth of the four servant songs. Remember we talked about those servant songs? This is the fourth of the servant songs, and it is the clearest of all of them. They all portrayed the suffering servant. They all portrayed the humanity of our Savior. They all, 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, painted such a clear picture of Jesus Christ, it caused this uh, section of Isaiah to be hated by the Jewish people. In rabbinic Judaism, uh, this portion of Isaiah was used by early Christians to try to evangelize Jewish people. And so it became very hostile on the part of the rabbis. They would avoid this part of their Bible. They would create allegorical interpretations of this, that instead of a suffering Messiah, just pointed to the, the affliction and the anti-Semitism and the, the terrible things that Jewish people have endured through the years. And uh, that's when they bothered to even discuss it at all. Typically speaking, it doesn't come up in uh, in their liturgies or in their readings. All right. So Isaiah's fourth servant song provides the clearest picture of Messiah in the Hebrew scriptures. When you start here in 52.13 and you go to the end of chapter 53, go to 53.12, you have such a clear picture of our Savior and how he walked in first advent and what he endured and what he accomplished and how he purchased our redemption. And so uh, we'll start with it today, and then we'll, uh, we'll take the rest of it next week. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. But you'll notice this happens to him. He doesn't claim it for himself. He doesn't magnify himself. He actually humbles himself. The reason why he's magnified and lifted up is because first he humbles himself in the will of God. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, you think Jewish suffering is something to behold? It reaches the crescendo in our Savior. So his appearance was marred more than any man. 
more than any man. Okay? And his form more than the sons of man. The physical abuse that he endured. And I think the, the Mel Gibson movie portrayed it, but didn't cover. I mean, it was vivid. <laughs> it was gruesome to watch. And in Hollywood's kind of good with, with makeup and special effects, and they can, they can vividly show you stuff. Um, but I wonder when I see the description here, more than any man, his form more than the sons of man, I wonder the maximum amount of human suffering possible to endure for any human being to, to survive. And that's, uh, that's what he went through. And yet, that's not what saved us. <laughs> okay? We weren't saved because the meat was ripped off his bones by the, 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 the 39 lashes. Okay? The crown of thorns didn't save us. None of the, uh, the, the, the physical suffering that he went through saved us. It's what qualified him to save us. It's what demonstrated his maximum humility so that therefore now the Father is bestowing upon him the maximum glory. Only the pinnacle of humility will be satisfactory to the Father. And that's what we're going to see next week when we learn about the satisfaction. So I'll just tease you with it here this morning. All right? And give you seven days to chew on it. But we have satisfaction in verse 10 of chapter 53 where the Lord was pleased to crush him. Yahweh was pleased at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Why? What brings him this pleasure? Is he just sadistic? (laughs) Masochistic? Both? I mean, does he love the torture? Is he a mad, genocidal, torturing kind of God? Why was he pleased? You'll notice we have good pleasure in verse 10 as well as pleasing. You'll notice if he would render himself as a guilt offering. We're going to learn the difference between free will and coerced. God doesn't love coerced. All right, Not grudgingly or under compulsion. God loves the cheerful giver. It must be his own choice. Abraham went up the mountain to sacrifice Isaac, but Isaac had to make the choice to go himself. Isaac carried his own wood up the mountain to Mount Moriah. And there's a, there's a picture being painted there. Jesus Christ had to be willing, no matter what, to accept the wrath of God for our sins. All right. And the acceptance of the... Uh, undeserved suffering, the acceptance of the physical abuse, the acceptance of the, of the sorrow and the shame and the, the, the things there was the demonstration that he was willing to accept the spiritual affliction as well. And so the Father was well pleased. I think Isaiah is, is the missing piece of the whole propitiation puzzle. Anyone that teaches the doctrine of propitiation, where do they go? They go to 1 John. They go to uh, 1 John 2, 2. Jesus is our propitiation, not only ours only, but for the whole world. And they teach the doctrine of propitiation. And they teach the helasmas vocabulary. And they teach the mercy seat vocabulary. And they, they find the Old Testament foreshadowing in the mercy seat. And they find the New Testament fulfillment in the doctrine of propitiation. And they preach propitiation beautifully. That the Father was well pleased. 
that when Jesus Christ said, it is finished, he said, it is finished because it is finished, that the Father was well pleased, eternally, infinitely pleased. There is nothing to add to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Nothing else could please the Father besides the spiritual death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so all the preaching on propitiation, which means satisfaction, all the preaching on propitiation defends it, defines it, explains it to a point, just asserts it, the Father was well pleased. But doesn't say why the Father was well pleased. Isaiah 53 tells us why. And so you've got seven days to chew on it and think about it. I'll come back and explain it to you one week from today. Let me get back now to chapter 52 and the three verses that we want to look at here. Messiah is going to have the maximum exaltation because he endured the maximum humiliation. In Isaiah 52, 13, we have the high and lifted up. He will be greatly exalted. And we notice immediately that these are passive voice. We notice immediately that he is not doing this for himself. That was Satan's great flaw. Satan is the one who uttered the five I wills. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will take my seat in the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will make myself like the Most High. The five I wills of Satan are the ultimate uh, self-help book in human history <laughs> or angelic history. All of these I will statements, they're all about self-promotion, self-glorification, self-exaltation, dissatisfied with his placement. As we've studied Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, the other passages that refer to Satan before his fall. Understand that when you engage in a program of self-promotion, you are an imitator of Satan. You are not an imitator of Jesus Christ. You will come under the hatred of God the Father. Friendship with this world is hostility towards God. No, he humbled himself, and so he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. James 4.10 and 1 Peter 5.6, this principle that we, if we don't know it yet, we better learn it quickly. If you've never seen these verses before, shame on you, because <laughs> you haven't been listening. I know we preached them. James 4, verse 6, he gives a greater grace, therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why do you think Jesus Christ is lifted up in Isaiah fifty-two thirteen? He's lifted up to the maximum because he was humble to the maximum. Has there ever been a greater expression of humility than Jesus Christ on the cross? Never. Never. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. He will exalt you. All right? It's not, a, it's not a newsflash or it's not a great secret. It's a pretty simple recipe. And he's given us the prototype to, to imitate. He's given us the example of his son to imitate. As we become imitators of Christ, we will humble ourselves. Don't, don't magnify yourself. Humble yourself. 
1 Peter 5, 6. That's why the last shall be first. That's why the servant will be exalted. And if you're too proud to serve your brother in Christ, well, then you're throwing away reward for all eternity. I'll tell you that now. 1 Peter 5, 6. And this is, uh, here's a fitting passage for uh, a man that's 19 days away from ordination. Um, here's Peter exhorting his fellow elders. He says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Your number one job is to shepherd the flock. You feed them, you bind them up, you, you uh, heal them, you bring back the lost, you do everything a shepherd has to do. Shepherd the flock of God. It's not your flock, it's the flock of God. But it's the flock of God among you. You're not responsible for every believer on the planet. <laughs> but your flock you are. The flock of God among you. Your lampstand, your flock. That's who you're accountable for. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. Keep that in mind. Like I tell you, we'll be back in that next week. Jesus Christ didn't go to the cross because he had to. He went to the cross because he wanted to in his desire to please the Father. As it says, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. If your pastor is in it for the money, ask yourself, is he a shepherd or is he a thief? Is he a robber? Is he a hireling? Jesus taught on that in John chapter 10. And then it says, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. Take the noun Lord and make it a verb. Okay, we did that this morning with truth and zeal. Um, Here's Lord, kurios, and make it a verb. Don't lord it over. Those allotted to your charge. There's an expression for you. Understand, if you are a shepherd over sheep, every sheep you have is a sheep that Jesus Christ has allotted to your charge. You serve Jesus Christ. Be faithful to what Jesus has assigned to you. Those allotted to your charge. That's, that's so huge. All right? I, t- I like to tell our visitors this. If you're visiting a church, find out. Don't find out what their music programs like, their daycare, their singles ministry, their whatever, bowling alley, whatever else. And you've got a fitness club. Find out if you have been allotted to the charge of that shepherd There's consideration number one and consideration number last, (laughs) okay? And when when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. All right. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. So if he's setting that example, proving to be an example to the flock, then everybody learns from this. And so there's younger men. Be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Clothe yourselves with humility. Just like Isaiah 52, Isaiah 61, all of these clothing passages, they require conscious choices on our part. Nobody gets dressed on accident. Nobody gets dressed just, oh, wow, you know, like did I sleep in the suit last night? How, how did this happen? Okay? No one showed up naked this morning. You, you got dressed and you chose what you put on. You're in charge of that. Clothe yourself with humility, because if you don't, he holds you accountable. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Have you heard that before? Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. 
Proper time, by the way, is the judgment seat of Christ when you can handle it. <laughs> when, the, when the true eternal exaltation comes, we'll have no more sin natures to get puffed up over the, the glory that he's bestowing on us. What a delight. His appearance and form endured nearly unimaginable disfigurement. His appearance and form endured nearly unimaginable disfigurement. In Galatians, we're talking about the Apostle Paul and how he was disfigured. How he, he says, I bear in my body the brand marks of Christ. He was stoned and left for dead, dragged out of the city as if he was dead. I believe he was. I believe they stoned him to death. They dragged him out of the city. And, and Jesus Christ returned the Apostle Paul's physical life back to that mangled body and didn't even heal the mangled body. Just restored Paul to physical life in that mangled body. And then he went in and preached the gospel to the Galatians and he said, you received me like an angel from heaven. You, did not, you were not disgusted by my deformities. Well, that was an imitation of Christ. I believe Jesus Christ was deformed more than any other man because that's what this verse says. His appearance was marred more than any man. If you see something that's so bu- brutally misfigured, you know, abused and disfigured, I mean, it's barely recognizable as being human at a certain point. Kind of becomes humanoid, human-shaped. And uh, this is what he endured. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. How many times does his blood get applied? <laughs> All right. His blood got applied. That's why blood is used so symbolically in so many different ways. His blood is applied, was applied to me when I accepted the gospel. His blood is is applied to you when you accept the gospel. When you trust in Christ for eternal life, we say that your sins are washed away by the blood of Christ. It's applied to you. It was shed on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. But it's applied to you at the moment of your faith acceptance of His promise. It will be applied to the nation of Israel at the second advent. In wrath, it is applied to the nations. And here's an application we see here, a sprinkling Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. <laughs> you know, it was the Jewish people that had the prophecies. You know, Zeus and all the, the, the Greek mythology and all of that didn't have one thing to say about Jesus Christ dying on the cross for their sins. Had a whole lot of things to say about Hercules and Zeus and Aphrodite and all this other dysfunctional soap opera pantheon that they were okay or the aztecs or the egyptians or the romans show me a nation whose gods you know odin and thor that's my lineage good german teutonic barbarians odin and thor did not prophesy that jesus christ would die on the cross for my sins no gentile nation did Kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what had not been told them, they will see. What they had not heard, they will understand. I find it interesting. Jesus Christ will be the first world conqueror to receive tribute, not on the basis of his conquest, but on the basis of his sacrifice. On the basis of his sacrifice. Not only do we see it here in Isaiah 52, but when you, when you think back about four weeks ago, three weeks ago to Isaiah 49, 
verse 7 and verse 23. Do you remember some of his titles back in chapter 49? Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down. All right. You know, Obama's in the habit of bowing down anyway, but imagine this. Kings will bow before Jesus Christ because the Lord who is faithful and the Holy One of Israel who He has chosen. He's not just the world conqueror. He's the Savior of the world. The Lamb of God who died on the cross. They will bow not for His conquest, but on the basis of His sacrifice. Still in 49, verse 23, Kings will be your guardians, their princes your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet. And you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. And then uh, sometime this week, uh, read through Psalm 72, if you would. Psalm 72, verses 8 through 50. Well, let me do it now. Two minutes. You had an extra hour of sleep, right? You're in good shape. You're all awake. Bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. Psalm 72, verses 8 through 15. I know, I know, I'm going to hurry home myself. we got a couple hours still before the Seahawks beat up on the Cowboys. Psalm 72, 8, may he also rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. Let all kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. Why? Because they can't help it. They're under the brutal arm of a dictator. For he will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and the needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. I'm always, uh, it's pathetic when politicians are milking sympathy and saying, oh, it's for the children, oh, it's for the poor, oh, all these things, and all they really want is just votes. But it'll be real in the, in the ministry of Jesus Christ. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence and their blood will be precious in His sight. Why? Because He died for them. Because He shed His blood for their eternal life. It will not just be a political deliverance. It will be born-again believers that enter into the millennial kingdom of our Savior. So may He live and may the gold of Sheba be given to Him and let them pray for Him continually. Let them bless Him all day long. Father, I thank you for your son. I thank you for his faithfulness. And we're going to see more next week in Isaiah 53. In a very pointed question, Father, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And Father, for us, it is a thrill and a delight to read this, to read our Savior, to see what he's done. But we realize, Father, everything that he's done must still be believed. It must be heard. It must be trusted. That uh, every unbeliever in this world, Father, must make their own faith acceptance. 
The gift is freely paid for, it's freely given, but it must be freely received. If it's not believed, Father, it will do nobody any good at all. I pray this morning for anybody that's thinking about this, that's wondering how this works, that uh, maybe they've, they've heard it before and they're just not there yet. Father, I pray if they're not there yet, that you'd get them there today or someday soon. Be faithful, Father, because um, the wrath is on the way. We don't want to be, we, we would not want any of them to be a part of that wrath. I thank you for your son who delivers us from the wrath to come. And I thank you for these, uh, these gospel messages 700 years before the Christ was even born. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.